I want to ask you a question or ask you to consider a question that you may not have much occasion to consider in your life. The question of where do you stand in relation to the crown? That's something we don't think about in our country, in our culture, our form of government. We don't have a crown, but for many people in many times and places, that was a question that mattered. Uh, the medieval knights of hundreds of years ago, uh, we have kind of a romanticized version of them and their, their tournaments and their battles, but most of their life was spent in desperate pursuit of winning the favor of the crown. They fought in the battles, they, they participated in the tournaments to curry favor. That was their only way of gaining riches and lands just because the favor of the, of the crown was bent towards them. And if they were disfavored, uh, they didn't receive those things. We see that uh, somewhat more pronounced or significant in the recent history of the English crown. Some of you might know the story of back in the 1930s, Edward VIII inherited the, the right to rule England when his father died. And within a year before he was actually crowned, before his coronation, he abdicated the right to the throne. He abdicated because he wanted to marry a woman named Wallace Simpson, an American woman uh, who had been divorced. And he could not be the crown king of Europe, or sorry, the crown king of England and the head of the Church of England and be married to a divorced woman. So he chose to pursue being married to her. And some of us, maybe looking back with rose-colored glasses, see that nobly, but at the time, and still, English people saw that as an irresponsible, selfish abdication of his responsibility, not of his privilege. And to this day, English people speak of the woman named Wallace. They call her that woman. Questions of where one stands in relation to the crown bring questions of identity, too. We see that with the, the recent tabloid type of headlines with Harry, Prince Harry, marrying the American actress Meghan and then choosing to leave the, the specific royal family and their role with the royal family. Questions of identity are at play there. Questions of purpose are at play there. Queen Elizabeth married a man named Prince Philip. Uh, he could not be called the king, even though he was married to the queen. He was the prince consort. Uh, but as part of the royal family, married to the queen, he, had, he didn't know what he was supposed to do. He spent most of his time just trying, to, trying out different hobbies, trying to figure out how to spend his money. Um, and that is not just the, <laughs> the responsibility of Prince Philip. Many royals the world over, time and place. Many princes of the family of Saud have been figuring out how to just spend their petrodollars on something that will make them feel interested over the course of their life. Now, I don't say all that. We're not going to play a version of which part of the royal family are you like. That's not what we're doing here. Uh, and as much as this might beg to make the correlation or the analogy of the, the return of the king, the theme that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. When is Jesus coming back? That's not what we're doing either. Following the discussion that Paul 
wrote to the Thessalonians about in our previous text, which was about the return of the king, Paul is focusing on these other ideas right now. He's going to focus on identity, favor, and purpose. Let's take a moment to pray and think about these things as we get into the book of Thessalonians. God, we pray that you would tune our hearts to your word this morning. Pray that our hearts would be ready to hear what you have to say to us. We would see clearly who you are and hear what you say about who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the questions that I believe that this next text will address, one of the questions about uh, ourselves is who are you? Paul had just spent time correcting the people of Thessalonica, the people of this Thessalonian church, uh, in verse 5 of chapter 2. There's, there's somewhat of a, an impatient statement from Paul. It says, do you not remember that when I was with you, I, I told you these things? He had told them in his first letter when he was with them, and then the second letter, he's repeating the same things again, correcting them. And even though... Uh, He's been clear here, and and Paul, I believe, is overall being patient. You might imagine the Thessalonians are at this point thinking, oh man, have have we messed up again? At first they were thinking, have we missed the rapture? Have we missed the return of Christ? Have we been doing something wrong? And now Paul set them straight on that, but he's had to come back and correct them a few times. They might wonder, oh, we got it wrong. Are we now the, are we the deceived people that Paul was just talking about in that previous paragraph, Paul's talking about those who've been deluded, those who've been led astray, and that that means that they stand condemned. And the Thessalonians may be wondering, are we in danger of that? Maybe they're realizing that in in their focus on the end times, the focus on Jesus coming back, they forgot a little bit of their identity. They forgot who they were called to be, and they kind of checked out. Some of them just tuned out and said, we're just waiting for the next time Jesus comes out. They, they weren't working. They weren't doing the things that, uh, that Christians were supposed to be doing on a daily basis. They were just waiting for the next day when they thought Jesus was coming back. So in light of all of that, Paul having corrected them, Paul having spoken pretty severely about what was at stake in the previous paragraph. Then we get to this paragraph, starting in verse 13. But for all of that, but, Paul says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So despite Paul's correction here, Paul is now answering with an affirmation. As we unpack some of the details of what Paul is affirming about them, think of yourselves in the Thessalonians' shoes. Think of it as a first person that Paul is saying these things about you. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian who is in Christ, think of this in first-person terms. We're going to look at it from a different angle in a little bit, but let's start with this first-person perspective. Paul says they are chosen and called. 
Now also, as we go through this, I want to point out, Paul is saying things about who the Thessalonians are, and I believe by extension about who we are. Uh, I want to be careful to point out that when we come to the Bible, the first and foremost thing that we should be looking at is not what it says about us, right? The Bible is not, we're not the primary character about the Bible, in the Bible, So when we're looking at these things that Paul is saying about the Thessalonian believers, any believers, I want to point out that he is primarily speaking, not in terms of who we are, but really in terms of what God is doing. And that's a significant thing about our identity that I I want to unpack with you. The first thing is he says, you are chosen. You are chosen. This is the, the doctrine of election that uh, sometimes is, is controversial, the doctrine of predestination. Uh, Paul doesn't offer a comprehensive explanation of that or a defense of that, so we won't be getting into that. But there are some important things that he is saying here. You are chosen. Us uh, is not, whatever standing they have, whatever things that Paul should be thankful for about them, wherever they stand in relation to Jesus is not because of anything they have done. It has nothing to do with their merit. It has nothing to do with who they were born to, like uh, some of the questions of, of royal families of old. They knew their relation to the crown because they were hereditary. It was, they were in the royal family. That has nothing to do with where we stand in the gospel. Their standing with God has nothing to do with whether or not their theology is perfect right? They just got their theology corrected and called out. That did not change their standing with God. On this side of death, none of us will have perfect theology, and that does not make you any less chosen, called, beloved. To be chosen by God is speaking of the whole scope of of salvation here. He says that you were saved, and then he uses the phrase sanctification, through sanctification, you are set apart. We normally use those terms when we understand the gospel, saved as like the the first time you are saved, the justification that happens, then sanctification describes being saved through the whole rest of your life. And then the next verse, he says, you obtain the glory. And we use that term normally to mean the, the end of salvation, the glorification that we receive. Paul's talking about all of these aspects of sanctification, of, of salvation, um, something that he chose us for in the past. If we are saved now, we're only in the middle of that process. If we are called now, we are saved now, we're only in the middle of that process, and there is still a lot to come. And there is a definite end that God has already chosen and determined us for. And the reason that's important right now uh, is because Paul is reminding them that they, they cannot fall away if God has chosen them. They can't miss the rapture. They can't miss Jesus coming back if Jesus has chosen them. If, if, he's, if he's chosen them for this process, he's going to finish it. They didn't miss it. If they get their theology wrong or they mess up, they're not going to mess up their way out of God's plan for them. That process that has not yet been finished. If they've been chosen, they will finish and be able to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end. And the same for us. We are not able to fall away. It's important to see the other things that Paul points out. He's just throwing tons and tons of theology into this text. He's checking a lot of boxes. He says that this didn't happen 
because you did it. We, we didn't set ourselves apart for sanctification. Who did that? You were set apart through sanctification by the Spirit. If you are set apart for Christ, it's because you were chosen, and then the Spirit is doing that in you. And it's because of belief in the truth. Now, we might think of that in terms of what we can do. Yes, I did believe that truth, but it's only truth that was ever revealed to us. We didn't go out and find it. It was made known to us. And that brings us to the next point that Paul makes. You were chosen, and you were called. Chosen was the plan ahead of time. The, the calling is when God executes that plan. If he chose us before the foundations of the earth, the calling is when he made that happen. Any of you, any of us, who believe the truth, if we have been saved, we are being set apart, sanctified, that's because at some point in our story, God brought the truth of the gospel to us so that we could respond in faith. And it's amazing that God works those details all in our lives in different ways, and millions and millions of times over. Those he's chosen, he has effectively stepped into your life and called you to respond to that in faith and make that a reality. And he's saying that to the Thessalonians here. To this he called you through our gospel. Paul is reminding them that they uh, had this happen in their life when Paul showed up and preached the gospel to them. It's not a gospel Paul owns. It's not our gospel in that sense. Uh, but he was the one who was able to proclaim it to them and they responded in faith. So we have redemption planned and then accomplished and the end goal of that i've already mentioned obtain the glory we speak we think of that in terms of ourselves being glorified and that is right and that is is true uh, the rest other parts of the bible describe that we will be conformed to the same glory that that jesus has not that we'll be deity but this is a different phrase that we are obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just that we will be given that, but we'll also be able to just sit and behold the glory of our Jesus Christ. Or sometimes it, it speaks of the favor. We will actually be able to sit in his favored presence for all of eternity. Like many of the knights of old, fought so hard to be able to be welcomed to the table uh, of their crowned king. We will be welcomed. We will not be cast away. This is in contrast to the, the previous paragraph where Paul was mentioning those who are deceived and wicked and those who are perishing, they will be cast away from his presence. No, we who are chosen and called will be welcomed into his presence. We will not be cast away will be welcomed and accepted. We just sang this song a little bit ago. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace, oh, the love. Sorry, let me say that correctly. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. And oh, the grace that brought me into the fold of God. It's his grace that brings us to him, that place of favor. I'm probably gonna quote some of the songs that we sang throughout this, this uh, sermon, the songs. Um, if you have time, I encourage you to go back, 
in whatever form you can, go back and listen to these songs. If you go back to the live stream that we have, or if you go and look up these songs independently, the list is on the front of your bulletin. They're going to preach the same sermon over and over again to you that we're going through this morning. So there is this favor and acceptance, even for these Thessalonian people who have needed correction, who have needed calling out. There's favor and acceptance for us who are rebellious against God, or even as Christians who still need correction and patience from God. This isn't one of the the big ones on the list, chosen and called, that we normally focus on. Uh, But just as an aside here, Paul also calls them the beloved, the beloved of God. Again, in contrast to those who are perishing, those who stand condemned, the Thessalonians are are, are called the beloved of God. And this is the the cause of his choosing. The reason that he, he chose them and called them was because he loved them. Same love is displayed in the sending of his son, the, the verse we all know, John 3.16. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Love that led Jesus to led God to plan and call us and choose us from the beginning, led him to send his son. And it is also the effect, the effect that we are called and welcomed into his presence mean he, now we stand in a place of him loving us actively. I put all this under the heading of uh, the question, who are you? Question of identity. And why, why does that matter? If you know Jesus, if you are in Christ, if you are chosen and called these are the most fundamentally true things about who you are. This, this is the source code of who you are. This is the DNA of a believer. This is the, the, the founding documents of you in your relationship with Christ. It's a starting point for any question of where you stand in relation to the crown. Where you stand in relation to Jesus is first of all answered by are you chosen, are you called, are you beloved of God? Anytime that you've messed up, anytime that you've got something wrong with your theology or otherwise, anytime that you've needed correction, or anytime you've just given up, the question is not what merit do you have or what is your family relationship or what else have you earned? The question where you stay in relation to God is first of all, answer are you chosen? Are you called? And again, we're affirming truths about their identity, the Thessalonians, our identity, but we're speaking entirely in terms of what God has done, who God is and what he has done for us. And God deserves the glory for that. I want to think about this from a different perspective, not just the first person, but from the third person. Uh, Because Paul is not just saying this for the sake of the Thessalonians, and us by extension. He's also describing his perspective of them. He's another character in this story. And how he thinks of other people is instructive for us. How he thinks of other believers is instructive for us. Uh, He's thinking of them, even after having just corrected them, even after calling them out, he's saying one of the things about them is that they're worth being thankful for. Not because of what they've done, but he's saying they're worth being thankful for because what God has done. There is time for gratitude for what people have done. He actually starts the book off with that back in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. We give thanks to God for you. Your faith is growing abundantly. 
Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches for your steadfastness and faith. Paul is, is thankful for those evidences of grace that they are doing. But he's, he's saying fundamentally when he thinks of them, the first thing he says is, we're going to thank God for you because of what he has done in you. So he's thinking in terms of, of their identity. Their identity is first and foremost who they are in Christ, not what they have done to Paul. Anything like that. They are beloved of God. We need to practice that ourselves in the relationships we have horizontally with other believers. Their identity is first and foremost who they are in Christ. They are beloved of God, even if I find them hard to love, right? They are the beloved of God. They're not that person who did that thing. They're not that woman like the British people think of Wallace Simpson. Another believer, first and foremost, is chosen, called, beloved of God, brother and sister in Christ. Part of the promise of forgiveness that is offered to us, but then we're also commanded to offer to others. Part of the promise of forgiveness is that we don't see another person through the lens of what they've done. We don't see them as the person who did that thing to me. We see them as a person who stands clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So forgiveness is, I'm going to choose to not think about that thing about you. Because that's what Jesus does for us. That's what God does for us. Instead of the whole record of every sin that we, he could hold against us, he chooses to look at the righteousness of Christ that is applied to us instead of the things that we were. So Paul is speaking of how giving a good example of how we should think of other believers. He also gives a good example of how we should think of unbelievers. In the previous passage, he calls them those who are perishing, those who are deceived, those who stand condemned. I don't think Paul, though, is forgetting that that was him too. And we should all say that. That was us. But for the grace of God, before Jesus, that was us. That was me. I was deceived. I was perishing. I stood condemned. It should generate in us compassion. Paul speaks of them as standing condemned, but the verdict is not, is not in, finally. While they are still alive, they're not condemned yet, right? That's, that was what was true of us. We stood condemned, but then the gospel interceded, and now we stand righteous before God. The door is still open. Paul is speaking expectantly here. He describes the Thessalonians as the first fruits to be saved in verse 13, which means if there are first fruits, there are more fruits that follow. He often described churches that he was a part of planting, the people he addressed then later, he called them the first fruits, hoping that there would be more fruit of the gospel, expecting that there would be more fruit of the gospel. The door is still open. Not, uh, those who are condemned aren't condemned yet. Those who stand condemned are not ultimately condemned yet. And so we should say they are, they're not saved yet. They're not believers yet with hope and expectation. I heard, I've heard that from some of our different missionaries who have described people to interact with as that's someone who's not saved yet because we don't know what the future holds. Uh, if you're here and you're wondering what at all we're talking about, 
If you're wondering what it means to be a believer or unbeliever, what it means to be chosen or called, maybe you find yourself in the unbeliever camp. The fundamental thing that you must know, and I would appeal for you to hear, is what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The question is not whether you're chosen or called. You're, you're sitting in on a conversation uh, of us who, who are hearing these things because we've been welcomed into the throne room of the king, if you will. And on one side of the door, looking back, we see uh, over the, the, the transom of the door, the head of the door, it says, uh, chosen before the foundation of the world. Those who are in here were the ones that are chosen. So you're kind of sitting in on us talking about that. But on the other side of the door, the door is open and the header reads, any may come. All who will may come. The open invitation is extended to you. Any who believe the truth, the truth that we believe that makes us saved is that Jesus, who we would call holy God, that he came in love to be a perfect man, to bear our blame on the cross, to take our sins so that we don't have to pay for them, and then rise again and offer us eternal life. There's a short summary of the gospel. If that is something you don't know, don't believe, I encourage you to think about that. Come and ask me or someone else here more about that. I heard a song recently, just this week, a folk song, and the, the chorus said these words. It said, heaven, hell, wherever I go, all is well in my soul. And there could not be more untrue. It does matter where you go, heaven or hell. Whether your soul is well, infinitely is dependent on where you stand in relation to Jesus. Where you stand, where you will go when time is up. So we've talked about the third and the first person here. I want to go back to the, the first person view about what our identity is in Christ uh, as we move on here. Because the identity serves the purpose. If we know who we are, then we know what we're supposed to do. Again, unbelievers, you're welcome to continue on the, the tour here with us. But if we are asking the question and answering the question, who, who are we, what are we supposed to do, is the next question. And Paul starts to answer that in verse 15. So then, brothers, so then, because of who you are, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the tradition. Stand firm, hold fast. And these are kind of shorthand for, for everything we're supposed to do in our Christian life. Uh, but there are some, some things that it means specifically here we want to draw out. Let's take the, the second one first. Hold fast. Hold fast to what? He says hold fast to traditions. Sorry, we don't want that one yet. Hold fast to, to, to the traditions that were handed down by Paul and his friends, either by their spoken word, by their letter, Traditions here isn't what we're talking about in our day and age, you know, the Bible versus tradition or man-made traditions. Paul is just saying, speaking in terms of what was handed down. Paul speaks of that several times. 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Jude says, 
we're supposed to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, handed down. Those are the traditions Paul is speaking of here. So to hold fast to the traditions, basically the gospel. The gospel and the, the whole scope of sanctification that flows out of that, the way that we're supposed to live the Christian life. Hold fast to that. And I think if we could put it in a little bit more modern phraseology, we would say that Paul would be saying, keep a grip on reality. Not just some random truths, but these are truths. The gospel opens our eyes to what really is going on in our world, who we really are, what all of the universe is about. The gospel opens our eyes to true reality. And he's saying, keep a grip on that. Don't lose that. Don't drift back into the delusions that surround you in this world about what the world is and what life is and what you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. No, keep a grip on reality. And then stand firm in that. I want to unpack here, stand a little bit by asking just a few questions. Stand instead of what? If you're standing, you're not sitting, right? If you're standing, you're not lying down. There's an intentional use of that word here. Stand is an active word. We're not kicking back and relaxing in the Christian life. Spiritually speaking, we're not sleeping. We are active. Are you standing firm? Can your spiritual life be described as one who is standing firm, keeping a firm grip on reality? Or spiritually speaking, are you kicking back a little bit? Spiritually speaking, have you just not gotten out of bed in a while? Paul calls us to stand firm. Stand on what? Again, what has been passed on to you? Stand firm in truth, in that truth that gives us what reality is. There's a beautiful picture of this in Psalm 1. Someone who stands firm on reality, on truth. He is like a tree planted by streams of water and yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Stand firm in that reality you've been awakened to, the life that comes from this truth that gives us light on the whole world. We're not standing on our own record of merit. We're not standing on our ability to stand and our, how long we've been standing that proves to God how worthy we are. No, we're not a knight currying favor. Uh, we are standing firm based on what's been given to us. What are we standing against? previous paragraph was speaking of the lawless one, but that's not to come. That, that's, that's still to come. That hasn't happened yet. And even before that, Satan is sponsoring all kinds of evil in our world that we are to stand against. Ephesians 6 reminds us of this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There is a distinction between light and darkness in the spiritual world that we're supposed to be a part of if we've been awakened to that. And it's not darkness that has borders that are national. The darkness doesn't have borders that are political. This is clearly just light and darkness. Those who are against God and those who have been 
saved, chosen, called, and made new. Have you forgotten that there is an enemy out there that we must stand against? I was going to use an analogy here, actually at Pastor Matt's suggestion, about an army standing guard. For example, in the Lord of the Rings story, because I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, um, Matt told me to do that. Um, but I, instead, I wanted to use a little bit more recent one. The, the people of Ukraine, many of you have seen probably some of the same images I, I have over the last week of people lining up to say, I'm going to fight for my country. Give me a gun, right? A week ago, they were bakers or lawyers or mayors. But because there's an enemy at their doorstep, they're now standing. Some of us forget that there's an enemy at our doorstep. And so we're not standing. When, when the pressure's off or we feel the pressure is off, we get lax. We may be kicking back and relaxing or we may be not getting out of bed. We need to be reawakened to the reality that we are in a war nonstop, spiritually speaking. We must have a wartime mentality. There is an enemy that we must be standing against. And if we ever had a call, like Ukraine is calling on their men, if we ever had a call that said, who will stand, whether it's in this country or in this culture or just in our church, would we have the same kind of lines lining up, people saying, I will stand against the darkness? There are dragons out there. There be dragons. But they're not just out there, right? There be dragons inside us. Same sin that's out there that causes darkness is still inside of us. What the song, Just As I Am, calls fightings and fears within and without. Would, would you line up and say, I'm going to stand against not just enemies out there, but I'm going to stand against the evil inside myself. Another question we might ask if we're being told to stand is, for how long? And this is one of the questions specifically that the Thessalonians were thinking. They were thinking, we're counting down the days, let's just kind of check out. We don't get to check out, though. One of the things that Paul is reminding us of. We might be tempted to, to think only so many days are left. You might be looking at the signs, rushes involved, things like this, the end times. You might be making the same type of conclusions as the Thessalonians. Jesus could come back. That doesn't give us any change in our direction, directive. We must still stand firm. Or maybe it's just a personal type of timeline you're thinking about. How many days you have left. And, and all of us will probably face that at some point of our lives. The longer we go on, we're, we'll have to reckon with how many days do I have left and what am I going to use them for? And for the Christian, the answer is not I'm just going to check out. Paul is saying, stand firm. And it doesn't matter how bad the enemy is. It doesn't matter that there are Malachites and Canaanites and Hittites still on the land, like our ABF lesson was reminding us of. Because 
God is victorious. Our God is victorious. He always wins. He's already won the battle. All we have to do is just stand and pay attention and fight with him in the battle he's already won. And for those of us who are standing and stand firm and stand long term, there is rest that's coming. We don't take our rest now. There is rest that's coming. We are promised eternal rest when the war is over. When I played soccer in high school and, and in college, I normally played midfield, which of course meant the most amount of running. Um, in high school, in the games, but most, more often in practice or in scrimmages, uh, as a midfielder, I'd push up to help attack the goal. And if that didn't materialize or the ball got turned over, there was the, the pressure to then fall back and play defense. If the other team got the ball, fall back and play defense. But sometimes there wasn't as much pressure, right? We turned the ball over, but the ball is on the other side and they're moving down that side. So I would just, the inclination is, hypothetically, you would just jog back and make sure you were kind of close to be able to play defense. And then if the pressure was really on, then you'd run and get there in time. And my coach would also always yell at me at that point in time, just hypothetically, <laughs> he would yell, sprint to rest. I didn't get it at first. He said, sprint to rest. Don't jog back. And then at the last moment, sprint, because guess what? I get to defense and I was out of breath. He said, sprint to rest. Sprint first, rest later. Do the hard work first. Get back there and then you'll have time to rest. It made sense. It worked better than my plan. But that's what we're called on as believers. Sprint now, because there's rest coming later. Don't kick up your feet and relax now. You'll be caught off guard. We looked at these things, who we are, what we're supposed to do. We may still be thinking, maybe the Thessalonians were still thinking, yeah, but I am prone to wander. You saw what happened. We just got all these things wrong. We got the timing of Jesus wrong, and he had to correct us, and we're prone to wander. Yes, you're saying this is who we are, and this is what we're supposed to do. How do we do it better next time? How do we not mess up again? We're prone to be distracted or to let down our guard or to give up hope. How are we supposed to do this? See how Paul anticipates that and answers that question. Verse 16, he, he prays basically and says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God of our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I think Paul is answering the question how here, not really as in like an instruction manual, detailed steps of how to do this or that, but he's answering the question of how, how is this going to work long term? He's, he's making this reminder that there is an engine driving this train. If, if we're trying to stay on the tracks long term for the long haul, to use a different analogy, stay on the tracks, Paul is reminding us there is an engine driving this train. We don't have to be the ones trying to push it down the tracks. And there is a, a good conductor who's at the helm of the train. 
So the only problem is when we try to take the reins, right? Try to take the wheel, and then we end up going off the rails. Paul's reminding us. He gives us the comfort. Comfort for those fears and fightings without and within. He will comfort our hearts. God will do it because he has done it. If you look there in verse 16, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who past tense, loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. May he give us comfort. He did it in choosing and calling us, settling our eternal question of where we stand in relation to Jesus, where we stand in relation to the crown, where we're going to spend eternity. He already gave us an answer to that that gives us comfort. He can give us comfort for the daily battles here and now. He gave us good hope through grace sang this song last week. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his strength to triumph through us. He gives us comfort we will not fear, and he strengthens us. My version uses the word, he will establish our good works, uh, but it's also can be translated strengthen or fix. He will set us in a position where we can do good works. Uh, he aims this at our hearts, is going to comfort our hearts and establish them, our hearts, in good work. He's going to work in our hearts such that good works come out. Uh, this is a correction to us who think we have to do this on our own, that we have to work harder to be good. And it's a comfort, a reminder that we don't have to. You can't do it. You can't keep the train on the tracks by yourselves because you, you don't have to. God will establish that in you. I want to close here asking you to remember these, these questions. Ask yourselves these questions. Remember the answers. Remember who you are. We're going to sing an affirmation of that. The song, Just As I Am, to close. Uh, we're going to sing about how we are welcomed into his presence. If you, again, are an unbeliever, sing this consider the message of how you can come to Jesus. Come and be welcomed to him. If you remember who you are, remember your purpose. Remember the engine that drives your train. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these great truths about us, but really about who you are. Help us to remember that we're in a war and these things matter. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.